Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! A minute ago, I forgot like so many things I meant to say before we prayed. So I'm just going to rewind for a second and do that now. I forgot to say that my name is Katie and my pronouns are she, her, and I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church. I'm glad to see y'all. Um, I'm, we're continuing in our worship series tonight, the one we began last week that Deanne helped us with, Faith, Hope, and Love, this holy trinity of Christian virtues that are placed together a few times in Scripture, but nowhere more memorably than in the love chapter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. And so uh, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. I'm going to read it um, slowly, hoping that you will just really let these words kind of wash over you. They're familiar and maybe too familiar in some ways. So we have to, we have to really collect ourselves to be able to hear this language tonight. So see if you can let it work on your spirit as I read. Um, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part. We prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now, I know only in part. 
then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love remain, these three. And the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In a footnote that begins on page 179 and runs for four complete pages, ending at the bottom of page 182, really an essay within an essay in print so small, even my 2.5x readers struggle to decipher it by the lamplight of 2 a.m. insomnia, a footnote I almost gave up on because it's about the eroticism of football and back hair and misogynistic name-calling, none of which interests me very much. This final sentence at the bottom of the fourth page and suddenly I can't breathe and suddenly I'm scrambling in the lamplight for a pencil to underline, creasing the corner of the page hard so I won't lose it, a permanent sacrilege against the printed book, a desperate measure against the forgetting that comes with the scrub of morning sun because it says, and I must remember, and it is worth four pages of squinting and sighing, it is worth whatever it's costing you right now to listen to me build it up. It says... What happens when our care for one another is motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common we love? Do you want to write that down? You want to tap it into your phone? Go ahead. What happens when our care for one another is motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common, we love. Even better, find it in the book where it found me, Ross Gay's book of essays, Inciting Joy, which if I haven't recommended to you already, it's only because we haven't had that kind of conversation yet. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Christians in Corinth, this one called First Corinthians, probably not his first letter to them and definitely not his last, the church in Corinth was in conflict. Actually, that last part would be true for just about any church that Paul ever wrote a letter to. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church in Galatia, the church in Galatia was in conflict. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church in Philippi, the church in Philippi was in conflict. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to Philemon, the church in Philemon's house was in conflict. And so on. Because people are people. Because religious people are people. Because we want what we want. And we don't all always want the same thing. Because hate and fear are excellent motivators. Hate and fear get shit done. Because we need to know who's in and who's out, who's us and who's them, who can be trusted and who cannot, where the boundaries are, where the exits are. Because love is harder. And love will get you hurt every fucking time. 
I say this as someone who has a lot. I mean, really a lot. I mean, really more than my fair share. So much love in my life right this minute. Love is harder than hate and fear, and love will get you hurt. Because love makes you vulnerable, because love costs something. It costs something to offer yourself arms wide open, heart wide open to another, to each other, to a world that probably will not love you back, at least not as good, not as consistently and pleasurably as you wish and need and deserve to have. Church is people. Ancient church, ancient people, just like this church, these people. And so the Corinthian church had conflict. And for today, it kind of doesn't matter what it was about. But when the Apostle Paul saw it, he said, oh, no, 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 no. That is not how we do tribalism, setting up camp, saying who's for whom, who's better than whom, who's competing with whom, who will be happy when who loses or settles back down into their rightful place. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how we do He said, what happens when our care for one another is motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common we love? And I know that's not usually how we read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, this lovely poem that gently chastises our tired selves at the end of a long day or a long week or a long fucking season. Our impatient, unkind, irritable, grudge-holding, disbelieving, dispirited selves. Usually we read it to remind ourselves to be more kind and more patient, less rude and less full of ourselves, more hopeful, more willing to bear up under other people's lack of reciprocity, the hurt that comes inevitably with love. But what happens when our reading of the poem is motivated not by the judgment we fear for having done it wrong, having loved poorly, but by what in common it inspires us to be. That is, not individual people struggling to patiently and kindly love other individual people, but a people whose care for each other is motivated by what we in common love. A people defined by what we love together. A people together because of what we love together. A thought experiment using the specificity of social media, but really applicable to so many of the ways we are invited to interact with each other, with the human family, with the news of the day. Facebook is patient. Facebook is kind. Facebook is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Twitter does not insist on its own way. Twitter is not irritable. Discord keeps no record of wrongs. Discord does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Reddit bears all things. TikTok believes all things. Yelp hopes all things. Google endures all things. Instagram never ends. 
Or again, filling in, the New York Times is patient. The Star-Telegram is kind. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, even my beloved NPR. Or again, filling in, the school board is not irritable. The legislature does not insist on its own way. Congress hopes all things. The White House bears all things. The judicial system rejoices, not in wrongdoing, but in the truth. Republicans, Democrats, and so on. Or again, filling in the church of your youth or certain members of your family of origin or a toxic workplace you have known or a partner who hurt you the way only a partner can. I'm saying we are drowning in ways to congregate around what we hate and fear in common. We are swept up in a whelming flood of outrage and hurt, disappointment and disdain, training our minds and spirits to find fault, to sort and separate neural pathways worn into smooth grooves of criticism and differentiation, those grooves like moats around the fortresses of our own self-preservation. We are trained to do this. I have been trained to do this. I do this. That's why the Apostles' poem reads like an indictment to me. Because I am not usually patient. I am not always kind. I can easily be both envious and arrogant somehow at the same time. Irritable and rude, check. Because I have an amazing memory for a detailed record of wrongs. Because I am sick of bearing all things. Because I'm not sure I believe anything. I have given up hoping for much. Because enduring everything has taken far too much from me. It's not that I think Paul didn't know that. It's just that I think he was up to more than simply reminding us to be nicer to each other. I think he was asking us to imagine what might happen if our care for one another in here were motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common we love. Asking us to be, if not love itself, a people, not persons, but a people for whom love is definitional, for whom the consideration of what we love in common is the highest, the loveliest ground we can claim. And, honestly, a people who have evaluated together what deserves our common love, because love is hard, it requires so much of our energy and effort. It will disappoint every fucking time. And what offerings in this complicated and often unlovely world will be worth what it will cost us? Another thought experiment via vocabulary substitution. We love justice for LGBTQ people. We love kindness around mental illness and mental health and neurodiversity. We love beauty. We love bullshit-free relationships. We love this world. God still loves And 
We could easily hate and fear those who do not love justice for LGBTQ people. We probably do hate and fear those who do not love kindness around mental illness and mental health and neurodiversity, who don't love beauty, who don't love bullshit-free relationship, who don't love this world. God still loves. Because we are trained that way. Grooves worn in our minds and spirits, the constant traffic of defining ourselves and each other by difference and disagreement, by discord and dislike and disrespect and dishonor and disregard. And 1 Corinthians 13 asks, I'm thinking less than it asserts, you're probably doing it wrong. It asks, what if it could be like this? What if against the training we have received, we could retrain our minds and spirits in the habits of love? Our life together, so steeped in the kajillion little ways we either contribute to or chip away at the common project of letting what we love define us. So that over time, love would actually win not just in each of us, new neural pathways for patience and kindness, hope and endurance, but for all of us together, how we think of our collective sense of identity. What could happen, Paul might be asking, if our care for one another were motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common we love? I know I keep asking that, Probably because it is the thing I find most precious, and by that I mean most valuable, most worth holding on to and spending myself for in this community of beloveds in Jesus' name. That we have coagulated together around our common assertion that there are a few things worth loving together. Worth wanting more of, even worth getting hurt for because we know it's dangerous to love as much as we have loved what we love together. It is the thing I feel like is most under threat much of the time here lately, not from the outside. I'm going to say a hard thing now, and here is my promise to you. I will never say a hard thing to you that I have not first said to myself. It is a thing that I've noticed among us, and I don't know if it's a new thing or if I'm just now noticing it. Sometimes I'm slow like that. Or maybe it's not new, but it's just now noticeable because the grooves are finally worn smooth enough for it to move freely without friction through our minds and right out of our mouths. I'm calling it the rhetoric of ultimatum. And I'm wondering if you've noticed it too. The rhetoric of ultimatum is when I differentiate and disagree so completely that I end up saying, well, I just can't be part of this if, and then fill in the blank. Or I say, I believe this so strongly that I just can't hear from anyone who believes otherwise. Or I say, I know for certain what is right and I cannot abide you not knowing that for certain too. Or I say, 
I know for certain what is wrong, and I can't be in community with anyone who does that. Or I say, I just cannot with that, with them. I just cannot. We are trained to say these things. Love does not say these things. I am listening lately to my own speech and my own heart for the rhetoric of ultimatum. I am listening to Paul ask me, ask us, to imagine something different. Because ultimatum is not patient or kind. Ultimatum insists on its own way. Ultimatum keeps a record of wrongs. And so I am listening for what happens if our care for one another is motivated not by what we hate or fear in common, but by what in common we love. I'm hoping, beloveds, that you will listen with me. And I am hoping, as First John, not the gospel, but the epistle says, that God's love will be perfected in us. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.